I love that one statement in John's, um, John's little video there that the things that I thought were true actually turned out to not be true with regard to the way uh, he was thinking about and using um, money and making different kinds of investments. And I like it, I think, because, well, I like it for a lot of reasons, one of which is it's a great segue into my message this morning. So thank you, John, wherever you are. Probably coming to Second Gathering if you're not here this morning. But speaking of things that are or are not true, that you think are true but turn out to not be true, who, 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 does anybody know who made this quote? Whoever, here's the quote, whoever says money can't buy you happiness doesn't know where to shop. Anybody know who made that, who's that, who that, whose quote that is? Donald Trump, who we of course know is one of the happiest, most contented people in <laughs> all the world. I was uh, put in touch by one of our members a couple weeks ago with a story about someone who actually would say to Donald Trump, no, that's not true. There is a philanthropist that CBS did a story on named Ari Nessel. And Ari Nessel says just the opposite of what Trump was implying. Ari Nessel has a foundation called the Pollinization Project. I won't go into all the details with you, uh, but basically he's, he's saying this. Transformation in communities happens at, a, at the small level, at the beginning level. And so Ari Nessel's saying, he made a bunch of money in real estate. He lives in Texas, I think. He's saying, I want to invest, give $1,000 a day to organizations that are sort of startup, uh, uh, startup philanthropists themselves, startup organizations, startups that want to help uh, communities, small groups like uh, giving away land to start a community vegetable garden, or there's one here in San Francisco uh, in, the, in, our, in our backyard at a prison where it's a ministry that's teaching inmates to think differently about violence and how are they gonna change their lives. And he said, I wanna find things like that. And I wanna give $1,000 to those organizations. $1,000 per day every day for the rest of my life. So he's constantly searching his foundation, pollinizing, pollinization project, constantly searching for these kinds of ministries, caregivers and communities, and writing them a check for $1,000 and sending it on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, he finds another group, writes a check for $1,000, sends it to them. He wants to keep encouraging that for the rest of his life. As of the end of last month, he had given 500 of those grants. So that's $500,000 that he's given $1,000 a day at a time to encourage small groups that are making a difference in their communities. Grants to f in 42 different states so far and 50 different countries. In this CBS interview that I watched, he said to his interviewer, this brings me great joy, tremendous happiness. And the interviewer then said, oh, so money can buy you happiness. And Nestle's very quick response was no, generosity can. Turning out to be a great source of joy for him. 
Whoever says money can't buy you happiness doesn't know where to shop. Nestle would say, the whole premise is wrong. Money can't buy you happiness. Generosity can. I love that. We continue our focus this morning, as Ben said in this three-week series, on money and the use of it. Today, we want to specifically talk about the idea of having a healthy understanding of money, a healthy view uh, of money. And we're making no apologies about the fact that Marine Covenant does ministry in our community. And our ministry is not funded by the government. It's not funded by foundations. It's funded by the people who make donations in the name of Christ to the church. And then through those donations, we put together our staff. We minister to our children. We put people on campus at Hamilton School. We, put, we support missionaries who are, as John referenced, ministering to communities where we're doing. I just met with Jim Gustafson, our missionary in Thailand, just a couple, just Friday, I think we had lunch and he gave me an update on what's going on with the HIV AIDS project that we're funding in Thailand, south of Thailand. And we do all that kind of stuff through our contributions here. So we're not making any apologies about the fact that if you don't give, uh, we can't do those kinds of ministries. But our primary goal today is not to get more money out of the pockets of Christians. Our goal is to help Christians, specifically those of us who gather here at Marin Covenant, get healthy around the issue of money. Because money is talked about in Scripture more than salvation. It's a topic that Jesus obviously understood would impinge upon or encourage and give life to enhance our faith. We want to do that in part because until that happens, the idea of a healthy view of money will never be free, ever, to invest in the church we love, the causes we love, or the people we love. So that's what this message is this morning. Just a few observations from Scripture about what a healthy view of money looks like. Some of the healthy, some of the components of a healthy and biblical view of money. So let's jump right in. Here's number one. A healthy view, a healthy view of money sees that money's true value is relative. Listen to what Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm reading a little more than I need to because I want you to get a sense for the contrast and the context in the Gospel. As he taught, Jesus said, and things are happening. He's there uh, at the temple where people are bringing donations and and he's teaching there. And he's wanting people to see what's going on while he's teaching. He says, as they're watching teachers of the law bring contributions, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And probably while he's teaching this, that's happening off in the background. They love to have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow that you just saw 
has put more into the treasury than all of the others combined. They all gave out of their wealth their, their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Money's true value is relative. How much did that widow actually give? Text tells us that she gave, oh, I'll just translate it for you, enough to buy about eight minutes worth of labor from a common laborer. A percentage of a day's pay for a common laborer. Eight minutes worth. That's about it. That's not much. And Jesus teaches, though, that there's this relative value of money because her gift in the economy of God was worth more than the combined gifts of everybody who gave from their surplus, from their leftover, which was substantial. A couple of things to point out here. That means that a healthy view of money recognizes that money has a moving decimal point. I call that the principle of the moving decimal point. It means that sometimes a $1 bill is worth 10 times that of a $5 bill. There's a moving decimal point. And what moves the decimal point, according to Jesus in this story? The value of money, a healthy view of money understands this, is determined by the sacrifice attached to the release of the money. She gave more than all the rest combined. Why? How in the world can't you add Jesus? Is this, is this the new Jewish math? Why did, how would you say that? They must have asked them the question. They're perplexed. It's because her sacrifice in giving it was profound. She gave from what she gave instead of eating tonight. That cost her to give that. And they gave and then are going to go to a party tonight and not even remember how much they gave. So the value of money, when we have a healthy view of it, we understand this, is determined by the sacrifice attached to releasing it. The greater the struggle to let go of it, the greater the value of what was released. Why? Because more faith is attached to that gift. I'm going to give this, Lord, because I see children in need and my church can meet those needs. I'm going to give this, Lord, because I see a school that needs help and I'm going to give, and I know my church will help that school. But I'm going to trust you to provide the big emptiness that this gift provides well, for causes for me. So here's some of the things that this means for uh, the church and the plan you may have for financially supporting it, if these things are true, this moving decimal point. It means that everybody's financial gift matters. Everybody's financial gift has significance. It means that the size of the denominations you put in the plate on a Sunday morning has relatively little to do with the size of your offering. Do you, do you get that? Because there's a moving decimal point. It means that the more a gift costs you to give, the farther to the right that decimal, where are you? The farther to the right that decimal point slides. Money's true value is relative. Healthy view of money understands it and is freed by it. Let me share with you a story that illustrates this. I have some friends, one of the churches I serve, who had been really blessed financially. They'd worked hard. Usually those things go together. Not always, but usually. They've worked hard. 
Uh, they were eating liver while everybody else was eating dessert in life. They went to school, they got an education, they invested themselves, they slept on the floor when they couldn't afford a mattress, and then just a mattress on the floor when they couldn't afford the box spring, and they, so they've been really blessed financially. And they gave a huge, some six-figure gift to the church we were serving. And I was astounded by it. And I got a call about a week later from one of the, one from the spouse, one from the wife, said, we have been talking about the gift we gave. And I was ready to say, don't worry, we can, we can give half of it back if it was too much. You know? I said, we need to double it. What? Why in the world would you do that? You don't need to do that. You've already made great contributions. They said this, listen to this. Because we were talking, we realized the gift we gave, that six-figure gift, it didn't hit us as hard as the $100 a month gift that a single mom we heard about had given to the church. And we asked the question, why should that mom have to feel her gift more than we should have to feel our gift? And they doubled it so that they could feel it at the same level that the single mom was feeling her very, very significant gift. A healthy view of money understands that money's true value is relative. It's the principle of the moving decimal point. Second point. A healthy view of money recognizes that money is a tool, not a goal. This is maybe the most prophetic thing I could say today in Marin County. Money is a tool, not a goal. Can I get an amen from the church on that? Money is a tool, not a goal. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 4.28. Listen to this. Every one of these texts, it talks about the idea of, of the, the actual purpose of work and and having money. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something, doing something useful with their own hands. Why? So they may have something to share with those in need. It's a tool, not a goal. In 1 Timothy 6, that's that text about the love of money. Be careful. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. In effect, they're saying the love of money, in other words, making it the goal instead of a tool, derails everybody and everything. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We're going to take nothing out. He's setting up a perspective. If we have food and clothing and all that, we're happy, we're content, we can get things done. Those who want to get rich, those who make money the goal instead of seeing it as a tool, fall into temptation and a trap, and they do many foolish and harmful things, plunge people into ruin and destruction. Because when that happens, people become the tool to accomplish the goal. You see how twisted that is? For the love of money, making it the goal instead of seeing it as a tool, an instrument, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. Even in Subsequent verses in the same text talked about uh, the, the, the purpose of money and the purpose of work to those who have been stealing to make money. Now work hard so you can have something to give. Now he addresses the financially wealthy. 
Command those who are rich in this present world, that's, that's code word for those who are financially wealthy, they have riches and goods, not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Nothing wrong with that. Being rich is not a sin. It's a blessing. If it's a sin, it's a sin I someday hope to commit. <laughs> it's not a sin to be rich. It's a sin to be greedy. But he's given for our enjoyment. Command them. He's speaking to a pastor here. Command the financially wealthy to do good, to also have a different kind of wealth. And there are many different kinds of wealth. He says, command them to be rich in good deeds as well and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation, implying that the financial wealth we have now is less than firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Because this is not truly life. This life we build for ourselves by seeing money as the goal and power that goes with it as the goal instead of the tool. Just about every text you read about in Scripture that talks candidly about the use of money tries to remind us that it needs to stay in perspective. I titled this sermon from my own notes, Putting Money in Its Place. And then in my own head, I added a little addendum. And I don't mean in your pocket. <laughs> Putting money in its place. It's this tyrant that tilts us. But a healthy view of money sees it not as a goal, but as a tool. We are called to give. It's so strong a call that it's actually assumed by the writers of Scripture. The idea of somebody being a serious follower of Jesus and not a serious contributor, contributor to the cause of Jesus is so alien to the mind of the writers of Scripture that they assume people are doing it. And occasionally when they need an instruction and an adjustment, they give them this kind of an instruction and an adjustment. It's not giving that's abnormal for Christians. It's not giving. Some of us need to hear that challenge and hope you hear the love in it as well. I'm one that struggles along with everybody to make this happen. Oh, by the way, pastor can come up and teach about finances and people get the unexpressed idea that he or she has their financial act as together as it sounds like they do. Not the case today. Are we all clear on that? <laughs> Not the case today. But the things I'm teaching are the things I'm Brenda and I are pursuing. There's a bit of chaos in our finances, but this is the direction we're going, and these are the things we're practicing, and we're letting touch our hearts. So it's the tool, not the goal. A healthy view of money knows that money is not an end in itself, not the product, but the doorway to the product. Do you get that? We're not about loving people and using money. We're about, uh, we're about loving people and using money, not the opposite. We're not about loving money and using people. And sometimes that happens when you get this backward. Money is for helping folks. Money is for supporting the agenda and initiatives of God on earth, including caring for your own family. Money is simply one of the tools available to us to make a generous difference 
in our world. Some texts that I find are helpful for me in keeping this in perspective are one that was already referenced in one of the New Testament texts that I read. In Ecclesiastes 5, that's where that famous text is. Look, naked you came into the world and naked you're going to leave. You get to leave with everything you brought in. Some of us leave with some other baggage too. Brenda and I were getting a little nervous about our financial situation. This is a few weeks ago. You know, you lay down in bed and your head's hit the pillow. For those of you who are married, for those of you who are single, you get to have this argument with yourself. But, but, but you should be having it with yourself. Just, we'll go there later. So the, <clears throat> it's another sermon. <laughs> and we're talking about something as couples will tend to do. And I'm getting all anxious, you know. And I said to her, Greg, I'm sure this was incredibly comforting for her. Greg, look, one day in the future, we're going to be lying in our caskets without a stinking care in the world. Everything's going to work out, which, of course, brought her great peace. But (laughs) the deal is you came in with nothing in your pockets and you go out with nothing in your pockets. That's a great reminder, a great perspective. And Jesus is teaching Uh, In Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That stuff rusts. Moths destroy. People steal it. Investment gurus take it from you because they know the system better than you do. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where my Father guards them. No one steals them. No rust in heaven. Good perspectives. I used to fret about money a lot. Here's something really practical that I started to do, and it worked. Now, first of all, I have it in my rule of life. I go check in on every once in a while. I refuse to freak out about money. I needed that rule of life. But to make that happen, I began to think this way. I decided to change and committed myself to seeing a dollar like a ticket, like a ride ticket. And those tickets would be exchanged for experiences. It was the experiences that actually had the value, not the tickets. So for instance, I get a salary, that's like a book of tickets. And I can use those tickets to give tips, reminding a person that they have value. I can use those tickets to secretly pay for someone's meal check, as my pastor friend and I just did when we met last week. Hey, they, hey, hey, see that young couple over there? I, they, they have a little cake coming. Out. They're saying happy anniversary. They're just a young couple. They should not be buying. They should not be eating at Hakkasan. It's too expensive. Let's get their, let's pick up their check. He said, I was thinking the same thing. Let's do it. Tell them happy anniversary. God bless you and everything. We, can, we just turn in tickets for that kind of stuff. It buys an experience. I can use tickets to get a house and keep the rain off the heads of those who are under my foot. That costs a little more, those tickets. I put food on the table with tickets. I can help fund the ministries of my church with some of my tickets. It's the experiences that have the value. The dollars simply buy me the experiences. That's one of the ways that helped me to remember that money is a tool, not the goal. That's a healthy view of money. And finally this. time do I have? There's the moving decimal point. Money's value is relative. It's the tool is a tool, not a goal. And finally this, did you know that money can be a protector of our hearts? We can actually use money to protect our hearts. We've already heard through a text that I read 
that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and it can corrupt hearts. But did you know that we can actually use money to protect our hearts? You can keep your heart in the right place when you have a healthy view of money. By placing your money where you think your heart really needs to be, according to Jesus. The use of one's money is always a window into the soul, but it's also a forecaster of the future location of the heart. It's as simple as that. It's really mechanical almost. What do I wish my heart looked like? Then I will take my treasures and put them there. And my heart will end up there. Treasures are like a magnet for the heart. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. I already referenced that text, but I didn't say this verse. The next verse says, For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Ben referenced that text last week. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. We tend to think of it the other way around. Well, wherever my heart is, that's where my treasure goes. That's not quite right mechanically. It's right in that it says your treasure and your heart eventually end up in the same place. That's true. Jesus is saying, though, actually hearts follow treasures, and then maybe treasures follow hearts. You can use money to actually protect your heart. You can use money to teach your children about protecting their heart. When they're young, saying, well, wait a minute, honey, let's go, let's go see this lemonade stand and this little girl's doing something to rescue children, kind of like you and your friend Jenny. When people take them and make them work when they don't want to and they do other things that are just terrible to them. They don't get to go home to their mommy and daddy. Let's go see what that little girl's doing with her lemonade stand. And maybe we should buy some lemonade there because that's what that's invested. You teach your children to protect their hearts by the location and the placement of their money. Where your treasure is, your heart will also be. And then that text goes on. The eye is the lamp of the body. Same context, no verses were skipped. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now I've said this to you a few times already. It's a good reminder though. The context is still. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Watch out what you do with your money. Your heart's going to follow the location of your money. He's in that context. So this seemingly strange reference to the lamp of the body and the eye is talking about finances. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is actually darkness, how profoundly great is the darkness? And it turns out that scholars have discovered some time ago that this reference, the eye is the lamp of the body, the eye is healthy, if the eye is not healthy, that that was a common idiom for generosity. So in those days, to talk about having uh, a healthy eye was to talk about someone who was generous. And to talk about having a dark eye, the, eye, the light that is in you is darkness, is to talk about somebody being less than generous, greedy. We do that today. 
We have idioms that we use that if somebody found us writing what would have made sense to us today and found our letter 2,000 years later, they would have no idea what we were talking about. I mean, can you imagine some of the interpretations of me writing to Jeff who asked me if I have a good idea, if, he thinks, if I think this idea will work, and my answer to him is, bro, that dog won't hunt. <laughs> I used that, I think I used that illustration a couple weeks ago, that, that phrase. We all know what I mean. That won't work. That dog won't hunt. Can you imagine the scholars interpreting that letter? Apparently they had dogs uh, in the, uh, the decision-making meetings and in that culture they believed that dogs had profound wisdom and if a dog scratched his paw three times you should use option number three, you know? It's, a, it's an idiom, we know what it means. The proof is in the pudding. I, do, I think it'd be fun to put together a sermon an assumed sermon, to, they used to dig through the pudding to find evidence of crimes. And, and Jesus is saying, look, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body is full of darkness. Generosity is the key. He's saying, where your treasure is, your heart will be, you can actually protect your heart. And then he's saying, money can serve as the rudder that directs the ship of your heart. Put your money where you want your heart to be. So, I want to end with this. A friend wrote a piece, an article on this that really helped me. I thought it made great sense. It wasn't original with him, and none of this that I'm sharing with you now is original with me, but I want to share it with you because the question comes, then how in the world can I make sure that I steer my heart in the right direction? What's some practical help about the use of money? Here are the things that he said. These are taught by different people. This is very common in different ways. I just love the way he put it. And he said, focus on three things in this order. Giving generously to the work of Christ, investing in your own sort of after-employment future. Because remember this, retirement is simply a change of funding source. It's not the cessation of work. Take that one home. It's going to change the way you plan for the future. He said, that's number two. And then number three, providing for your own household now, which is also a biblical mandate and responsibility. Do that, and your heart will be so already directed that it's more fully protected. He, he, he refers to three jars in his work. He said, first, my family will work on the give, there's the give jar, the save jar, and the live jar. Save, give, save, and live. You've heard this from different teachers before. This is just the way he put it. Proverbs 3 talks about honoring the Lord with your financial wealth, and then things tend to fall into place for you. And so he, my friend says, the first thing you do is pay attention to the give jar. You invest in things like your local church and favorite mission organizations and philanthropic organizations. And then you put money, you haven't spent anything on live yet. You put money in the give jar, then you go over to the save jar. And you put a percentage in the save jar. These are investments you make for the future. Proverbs 30 talks about the ant and calls the ant, the community of ants, common ants, very wise. Because they work hard now so that they can survive tomorrow. It's not wise and it's unbiblical to have a view of money that uses everything up on today without saving for tomorrow. We put a lot of things at risk doing that. The general rule of thumb is give 10% of your income 
Invest 10% of your income, live off of 80% of your income. That's a general rule of thumb. Because what's left over after you give and save, my friend says, is what your budget is for your living expenses. Now here I want to be very open with you. To have Brenda and I figured this out perfectly, I'll give you a clue, okay? The answer is no. But man, we're working on it. Because I want the day to come when I no longer need to draw an income from the church as quickly as possible. Now some of you are saying, Lord, make it quick. <laughs> so that I can be free to invest myself without being a draw on the church for a salary in the ministries of the church. But I can't do that if I don't save, if I don't invest, if I don't get ready for the future. But I also need to take care of today. So anyway, that's just one practical idea of how to steer our money in these three critical directions. Give, save, and then live. And a healthy view of money understands that. Okay, that's enough. I'm done. You know, Marine Covenant is doing fine. We thought this was a perfect time to do this series because we're not, uh, oh my gosh, if you don't give a gift tomorrow, we're closing the doors the day after tomorrow. We're doing fine. We'll be able to maintain. We're doing some great things. But we're not doing anything compared to the dreams that God is putting on our hearts. We're a good, solid, faithful church moving in the right direction. But we want to be an icebreaker church. We lay awake at night dreaming about things. Some of my personal dreams. I dream of a debt-free building. We did really well in this facility. There's still half a million dollars or so that we owe in this thing, which is profound success given what we were facing. That's all we owe on this building. But I don't want to owe anything on this building because that's managing a debt that doesn't go to managing ministry. That's a few less people in Thailand with HIV AIDS that we're going to be able to help and less ministry we're going to be able to do at Hamilton School and fewer missions trips to Mexico. We dream about this stuff. Here's my crazy dream. Want to hear my crazy dream? It'll scare the heck out of you. These buildings over here that we own have a note of about $3 million on them. They're worth what, John? Twice that much? And we rent them out. I, I dream, I want, this is one of my personal goals before I retire in six years. I'll give you the date. <laughs> I want that paid off. And once we pay it off, check this out, we form a foundation. That paid off will produce something between four and $600,000 a year. That's generally true. Just not having the note on it is notes 300 and some odd thousand dollars a year. That paid off will produce, say, half a million dollars a year. What if Marin Covenant Church took the profits we made from that building and said to the whole Christian community, no matter what their name is on their sign, you guys want some help figuring out evangelism in Marin? We'll help you. You, want, you need to fund a really great idea, an outreach initiative? We got it. Apply for a grant from us. What if we fund our missions from that? What if we fund church plants from that? Do you realize what we could do with that kind of income while we're ministering to the clients that are at that building? That's a big dream I have. We're doing well. We're doing really, really well. But man, if everybody here caught a vision for what we could be doing, you wouldn't just have to read about great stories of great churches. You'd be one of them. I think we already are a pretty great church and made huge gains. 
But these are the kinds of things that keep us up at night. Serving the other churches in Marin. Saying to the enemy, you've been dividing the church of Marin County for too long. And guess what? You better sit down because Marin Covenant just showed up. We just got this figured out. We just figured out how to do new and relevant ministry and not lose our senior community. They're staying. They're using earplugs, but they're staying. (laughs) You better sit down, Satan, because Marin Covenant Church got this money thing figured out. We're staying together. And it gets even worse for you. We care about other churches. We care about other pastors. We care about encouraging other pastors. We care about folks who are wandering, looking for answers, and we are doing something about it. May I be so bold as to say, I am convinced that that is what the Lord is giving us the privilege to do, but it will not happen. Let me put it more positively, and it will happen when we figure out that we're determined to have a healthy view of money. It's got a sliding decimal point. It's a tool, not a goal, and it can protect our hearts. Doggone it, we're going to start using it that way. That's the challenge to you. You know the song Hotel California? (laughs) Hotel California by the Eagles. I think one of the most brilliant songs ever written. I used to not use it because I thought it was about Satan. It's not. Well, it is in in a way. Hotel California is a song about the seductive power of consumerism. Welcome to the Hotel California. It'll suck you in. This California mentality. Tiffany twisted. Mercedes Benz. Benz is spelled B-E-N-D-S. D as in David S. And you can check out anytime you want, but you can never really leave because a broken view of wealth and money takes advantage of the insecurities that are created by the people who can profit from them. And they keep sucking us in. And here's Jesus calling out, don't trust in that stuff. Be free instead. Invest in the things that will not rust. I want to give you a chance to be quiet as we finish and ask yourself this question. Ask the Lord this question. Lord, the views I have of money, are they drawing me away from that hotel or toward it? And What can you and I do about it? Just give you a moment to be silent. Reflect on that question. Ask yourself, will I be free or not? So we've asked the question last week, do you have a plan that supports the church you love? Because we always want to support the things we love. Get one. And today, do we have a healthy and whole biblical view of money? And next week, you get Pastor Jeff. And he's going to challenge us because he says, you know, only when those things are true can we fulfill the dreams that God has put on our heart. And we all want to fulfill the dreams that God has put on our heart. Let's pray. In fact, why don't you stand and be dismissed with this. Lord, we now ask you to strengthen us as we go out 
talking about taboo subjects because you talked about them. We love freedom. Make us free indeed. We love generosity because it can bring us happiness. Make us generous people. And heal our view of money. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.